Go ahead and, if you would, open your copy of God's Word to Luke chapter 6. I'll give you guys a moment to turn there. We're going to be in Luke chapter 6 and verse 37. And uh, while you're turning, I'll just say uh, we, I think we had a lot of really fruitful discussion last night. I don't think you might recognize initially how much of a blessing it is to be part of a community that can engage in really difficult conversation and uh, engage in that conversation in a way that is respectful and in a way that um, is, is assuming benefit in the other person. So um, I just want to say it was really a blessing for me last night to be able to um, engage in that discussion with y'all. And um, I'm, I'm sure that, you know, as, as those conversations continue to go on in our community and you guys continue to have those, uh, those discussions with one another, that that will continue to be edifying and be um, something that resembles uh, the kind of community that we're trying to, to build here. So um, it was a real blessing for me last night to be able to um, spend that time with you guys. Um, if you are there in Luke chapter 6, would you please turn with me, or please stand and join me for the reading of God's Word. I'll be reading starting in verse 36. I misspoke earlier. Verse 36 of Luke chapter 6. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck that is in your eye out? When you yourself do not see that there is a log in your own eye, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out that is in your brother's eye. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can be seated. As we study these verses together tonight, uh, the heading or the title that I'm working off of is Guarding from a Critical Heart. Guarding from a Critical Heart. And in these verses, I, I really think we get a, a picture of the, the warning that Jesus is giving to his disciples, primarily in regards to a very natural pitfall for those who engage in holy kinds of living. The kind of person who, is, who will believe Christ's teaching, who will engage in mercy ministry, who will call themselves to holiness, is also the kind of person that is at the very risk of the very next thing that Christ says here. He's warning them about a very natural kind of pitfall for a religious person. This is not a pitfall for someone who does not value law or does not value truth and who is okay with anything and everything in their midst. That's not the concern that he has in mind here. The concern he has in mind here is to guard his disciples and those whom they will disciple from the natural inclination of the human heart to become critical and to become judgmental of others who might not see the world the same way that we see the world. And so as we dive into these verses together, I want uh, just to put that out in front of you 
uh, not as something that is taught just to the disciples thousands of years ago, but I think that these words from Jesus Christ are living and active and applicable to us in this context today as well. They are not just bound in the annals of history, but they're also something that we can profit from, that we can understand, and that we can apply to our own lives as we try to work out what it is to live this Christian life in community. So I'm going to start reading once again in verse 36, and if you'll just follow with me as we go through these verses. The first thing Jesus says is, Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Now, for many of you, depending on what translation of the Bible you have in front of you, that verse 36 is actually at the end of a paragraph that was introduced uh, starting in verse 32. Regardless, most Bibles will break that up actually into the whole previous section uh, under the category potentially of love your enemies. Uh, It goes with verse 27 all the way down to verse 36. Most of your Bibles have that kind of a division in it. And with that division, how we naturally read these verses is we see that be merciful even as your father is merciful as a natural repetition of the statement of verse 35, the statement we studied last week. I'll remind you of that statement. It says, but love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you'll be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. And then as we continue to read, it says, be merciful even as your father is merciful. Now, while it is a fair thing to say that be merciful even as your father is merciful very much coincides with that previous idea, I think the better way to understand that is as a transitional statement into the very next thing that Jesus says, which is as he turns to exhort his disciples to not judge others. He says to be merciful even as your father is merciful, drawing on this idea he's just laid down for them, And then he turns and he says to them, judge not, and you will not be judged. And if you were to read these verses in that light, you will see that be merciful even as your father is merciful is not so much a summary statement of the previous section as much as it is an introduction to in light of loving the way Christ loved, in light of embracing the kind of life God is calling his people to live, in light of all that, What does that mean practically on the ground? Where do we take our cues from? And he says, the first place we take our cues is from our Father. Be merciful as our Father is merciful. And then he begins to expound what that looks like on the ground. Now, you'll remember that last week I talked about the beauty of the mercy of God as displayed in Scripture. You'll remember that we see throughout the Old and New Testament the consistency of God's mercy where he withholds just punishment from sinners And instead, he gives them mercy and opportunity and grace. And he is kind to those who are fully deserving of his justice. People who have rebelled against him. People who continue to rebel against him. And yet, he shows them mercy. As we saw last week, he says that he is kind to the ungrateful and to the evil. And this idea is not very much different from that because he's saying, be merciful. And where we get the cue to be merciful is from our Father, who is merciful. So if you want a standard for how merciful you ought to be, how free of criticism you ought to be, how generous you ought to be, you take your cues not from the society around you, not even from other Christians. You take it primarily from the model that God the Father sets forth in the pages of Scripture. And that is quite a standard. It's a really high bar when you look at it that way. Because we're talking about a God who looks to people who blaspheme his name 
And rather than exacting justice on them in that moment, what he does is he gives them yet another opportunity. And he sends them prophets to declare the message of salvation and repentance. And that is a God whose mercy exceeds the human mind's ability to fabricate. It is a God that no human would have invented. And we know this because when humans have the opportunities to write stories, we write stories where the main character is wronged, and the whole arc of the story is that main character getting vengeance on every single person who's wronged them in some glorious fashion, and then ultimately them beating the final enemy who had possibly wronged them the most. Those are the kinds of stories we pay money to go see. We pay money to see people get exactly the kind of vengeance that is justly theirs to attain. And yet, when God writes a story and he tells us about his heart and his character, it doesn't sound like these human stories. I know this, if you wanna read these human stories, go read about the mythology of the Greeks and the Romans. Read how their gods treat people who dissent and go against them. There's no mercy there. There's bartering, there's temporary deals that are forsaken. There's triumph, there's victory, there's defeat in battle, but there is no mercy displayed. God of scripture shows mercy. He shows mercy consistently and in a way that calls all of his followers into that same kind of lane. We do not really have an option in this regard. One of the ways that we tr speak to the truth of our adopted nature as sons and daughters of the king is by being merciful. It's a sure way for a watching world to look and to see, are we really the kind of people who believe the things that we say we believe? Our ability to display mercy testifies to the truth of what we claim to believe. We are called to be merciful, not as the world around us is merciful, but as our Father in heaven is merciful. And we need to know exactly how merciful he is. If you'll actually turn with me to a verse, I want to look at 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9. 2 Peter chapter 3 deals with sifting through the nonsense of false teaching in the church. And as Peter is concluding his letter, he's talking about this beautiful day of the Lord coming back. And in chapter 3 and verse 9, he has this amazing statement about the character of God. He says this, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. What a striking statement about God's mercy. God's mercy is unlike human mercy. God's mercy exceeds our ability to understand. It even exceeds our ability to apply. Even taking cues from God as Christians, we would still fall short of this standard consistently. And yet, the golden standard, the standard that God set forth, is that he is patient and he is merciful because his heart posture is for people who are his very enemies to come to salvation. His desire is that all should reach repentance. The mercy of God towards sinners it has no bounds. It has no limitations. It has no cutoffs. And yet, serving this God, worshiping this God, we encounter many servants of this God who do not model the kind of mercy that God models. You can think of someone like Jonah in the Old Testament, who is 
hateful towards the very people who he is called to witness to. So much so that when they repent, his gripe with God is not that God has sent him to do it. His gripe is that God would even spare them at all. He says, I did not want to preach to the Ninevites because I knew that you were a merciful God and you would save them. And he is yet a servant of God executing his commission that God has sent him to. So we can see how short God's servants fall of this kind of mercy. And yet, the disciples of Jesus are called to be merciful, even as their Father in heaven is merciful. If you're not seeing how high the standard is yet, consider with me this as well. That it is not as though God shows us grace and shows us mercy because he owes it to us in any way. God, if he were to be perfectly just to us, if he were to execute exactly everything that we deserve, we would be evaporated in a moment. And yet he does not. He doesn't have a weak case against us, and so he settles out of court. He has a perfectly legitimate and perfectly written and impeccable case against each and every single one of us in our sin. And rather than taking it and executing justice on us, what he does is he looks at all the charges and he and the Son and the Spirit together decide how they're going to deal with this. Not through justice, but through mercy. And as we're taking those cues from God, I think that there is so much for us to learn as Christians. This is a standard that is so different from the natural condition of our heart. Judging is the natural condition of our heart. We do this all the time towards people. And yet we are called as Christians to prioritize mercy instead of judgment. Now let's take a careful look at what he says in verse 37 and 38. Because if we take these verses too far, we end up living in an unrealistic kind of world. Verse 37 says it this way, Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For the measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. These verses paint a picture for us of a kind of society in which we begin to make charitable judgments about one another. What he's telling us is not that we ought to never judge anyone ever. We know this because other biblical authors and even Christ himself tells his disciples to be discerning people. To be able to judge between those who are true teachers and those who are false teachers. Paul, who's a disciple of Jesus, who writes most of the New Testament, actually tells the church in Corinth that they should have actually been more discerning about who they let into their fellowship. Because there's one person in their fellowship that is committing such sexual idolatry and sexual, uh, sexual uh, sin that he's actually ruining the witness of the church. And so they say, you should judge that person appropriately because they are blaspheming the name of God. That's not what Christ is talking about here. He's not saying there's never a grounds ever to judge. Because there are good reasons to judge. We are all called to be discerning and wise. We are called to be the kind of people who discern who we associate with. We are called to be the kind of people who discern who is influencing us, what is influencing us, and to judge whether or not those are relationships worth investing in or not. 
That's not what is being spoken of here. What he's saying here is don't judge out of a critical heart posture towards people. Don't assume the worst in everyone. Don't look at everyone with a critical lens and evaluate them against a standard that you won't even evaluate yourself against. And this becomes remarkably clear because he, he immediately goes back on this, uh, this idea of reciprocity. He says, you shouldn't judge and you will not be judged. And you shouldn't condemn because you will not be condemned. You should forgive because you will be forgiven. The idea is that how we judge, how we treat one another, how we forgive, testifies to whether or not we have been judged in that same kind of way, whether or not we have been condemned in that same kind of way, whether or not we have been forgiven in that same kind of way. The logic, you could also take it backwards, is this. If we have been forgiven, and we've tasted forgiveness, and we know what forgiveness is, how can we turn around and not display that same kind of forgiveness to a lost and dying world? And you can take it backwards again with condemnation. If we have not been condemned justly for all of our sin, why would we want to exact that kind of condemnation on anyone else? If we have not been judged against the perfect standard of the law, and we can't even go against that standard, why would we hold anyone else to that standard? God is a perfect judge. God will have right condemnation one day. God will forgive rightly one day. We leave those kinds of judgments and condemnations and forgivenesses up to God. We as Christians, as we live out this life, are called not to have that kind of critical spirit. You remember the famous parable of Jesus as he is uh, talking about a servant who is forgiven a debt that he literally could never have repaid. And yet he turns to his fellow servant and he tries to get three days worth of wages out of him. And when the master hears about the servant who's been forgiven so much, and the fact that he turned around and to his fellow servant wouldn't even forgive a small debt. He says that this is a wicked servant who has no understanding of what he's been given, and he throws him in prison. And what a picture that is of us, and as we live our lives, how, how much we could learn from that picture of how we who have been given, forgiven an immense, an immense sin debt that we can't even wrap our heads around would turn to our brother and sister who are also image bearers of Christ and say to them, I want perfect justice in this case. I can't forgive you. I want to exact condemnation on you in this regard. That's the kind of critical spirit he's talking about. What he's warning them against is what would be the natural bent of every single person who's grown up in a religious community. Every single person who's ever spent any amount of time in a religious community knows the temptation of this kind of judgment to become very critical of other people and how they conduct themselves. We would never hold ourselves to such a standard, but we would look at how someone else conducts their life and how someone else speaks and the kind of language they use and the kinds of things that they watch. And we would look at that with a very critical heart. And we would assume that that is affecting them possibly negatively in some way. Or we would assume that that bears testimony to a deeper kind of sin in their life. We would never hold ourselves to such a standard, but we would have no problem doing that to other people. And if you struggle with that, that's not because you are a particularly refined sinner. That is because you and I and everyone together shares that same kind of sin nature. And sin will have its way in people. And so if you are a religious person, 
sin will work itself out in your religion. If you are a person who is very forgiving, sin will work itself out in accepting all kinds of craziness into your life. But I don't think that's the danger for most churches. Some churches, that's the case. I don't think that's the case for our church. The danger for our church is this warning right here. To become a kind of judgmental, condescending, critical people of everyone else around us because they're not quite up to the standard that we have marked out that they should be up to. We will make all kinds of excuses for our own sin. We will do gymnastics about the situation we were put in and how that's really not who we are and this was a fluke kind of incident. And yet when we see someone else do the exact same thing, our heart immediately rushes to a kind of critical judgment. That's what's being warned against here in these verses. He has this picture, and I think it's a great picture. He says, it's a good, if a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. That is the kind of way we want to judge other people. The picture is uh, about a business transaction and how they would weigh and measure grain when they're trading it with one another. He says, don't give a very arid, empty kind of a measure poured out to somebody else. He says, get that thing, fill it up, pack it down, shake it, make sure it's as full as possible, as generous as possible, and give that to somebody else. And you'll be known as the kind of person who consistently gives that full measure to other people. And you might be surprised to see that a watching world has paid close attention to your generosity and has noticed that you consistently do this and that it testifies to a reality about who you actually are. If that illustration doesn't do it for you, I can give you another kind of illustration, maybe 2,000 years a little bit updated. I was a student at Indiana Wesleyan, and in our dining hall, sometimes you would meal swipe for a whole meal. And during this meal, you would go to various parts of the lunchroom, and sometimes you could get burritos, or you could get sandwiches, or you could get burgers, but I really liked the burrito line. Depending, on who was serving the burrito meal. Because some people scooped very generous portions to you in that burrito line, and some people did not. <laughs> and if I was given the opportunity to flip my, myself into their position, I know who I'm gonna serve and how I'm gonna serve them. Because I know who gives good portions and who doesn't. And I know that that is a true reality, not only in that example, but also in our lives. Our mercy, our generosity, our charity, our willingness to forgive and to be forgiving is a display about God's mercy that we believe we received. The measure that we use for others will be measured back to us. Now I want to be clear about what this is not saying. How the world will quote these verses to us is in any condition ever where we will say that is sinful. The world will say, well, you know, your book says don't judge, and so you shouldn't. But that's not what these verses are saying. Remember, there is a kind of judgment that is right and true and good. So we should be careful not to fall into that, oh, our book does say that, and we, we shouldn't judge other people. Scripture is clear. There are some conditions in which we should judge other people. We are told to judge people who would be wicked in a community and to cast them out because they are a vice against all other people there. Anyone who's ever been a good parent would know what it is to judge who you would and would not let take care of your children. That doesn't mean you're a wicked person, that just means you're a very prudent, prudent individual. It actually makes you a better parent, depending on who you sift and judge, because there's a criteria that you must have, a standard that you must have. 
But it doesn't mean you become critical of all other people in the world. There's a difference. There's a difference between critically judging and wisely judging. There's a difference. We leave all critical judgment up to God because he has perfect knowledge of everything. He knows all things. There's nothing that has ever escaped his grasp. He weighs all things appropriately. And we don't. We have bits and pieces and small pictures of knowledge. So we shouldn't rush to judgment. It shouldn't be our default response. And yet in our sinfulness, we know that that is many times our default response. And if that's you and you know that that is true of your own heart, this is not time to despair. This is time to recognize that as the sin that it is. And like every other sin that we've ever struggled with, take it before the throne of grace and ask for forgiveness. Because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And you will not be overcome by these sins, but rather he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of our unrighteousness and our judgment. He who is living in us promises that he can deal with our sin in a way that we often cannot in our own uh, religiosity. Verse 39, I think, expands the idea. And really, verse 39 through verse 42 paints uh, another kind of picture about taking our cues from bad teachers versus good teachers. If you want to know how you end up with a critical, judgmental spirit, pay attention to what's being said in verse 39. He tells them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? And will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Notice what he just said there. Blind people leading blind people, teachers training disciples, and disciples being made into the kind of person their teacher was. And remember what he said in verse 37 is, you don't want to become the kind of person who's judgmental and critical. He's expanded the idea. He says, if you don't want to become that kind of person, don't be discipled by those kinds of people. If you don't want to get a critical spirit out of your own heart, if you don't want to become like that, don't learn from people who are like that. Who's he talking about? He's talking about the Pharisees, which in his day was the case example of sound theology and judgmental spirit. It was the case example. Keep the Sabbath, very sound theology, but in this way. And if you step out of line, you're a sinner. Sound theology, critical spirit. The scribes and Pharisees heaped burdens upon people that they could never have borne. He's saying, don't learn from them. If you're taught by those kinds of people, you're going to become that kind of person. And there's much for us to learn in that kind of truth as well, because we who are discipling others should be careful how we disciple them. Because they will become like us. They are taking their cues from us, whether we know it or not. And it's also true that we who are being discipled by others will become like the kind of person we're being discipled by. This is, this is an unconscious learning built into the human frame. Children do this as soon as they're out of, uh, as soon as they're born and they're growing up, they take cues, they, they model the facial expression of their mother. They will say the same kinds of words and phrases that their family says around them. This is just how humans learn. And so we who associate with people and who train other people, we shouldn't be surprised if both our good and bad habits are, are taken up. And we shouldn't be surprised if we take both good and bad habits from other people. And so we want to have not blind leaders leading us. We want to have people leading us who can see clearly, who can see rightly, who won't lead us into a pit, who won't lead us into a bad place. 
Because a disciple is not above his teacher. A disciple will become like his teacher when he is fully trained. And so we can be prudent about who we allow into our lives to disciple us. And we can also be prudent about who we disciple and how we disciple them. And we should be careful about those things. You'll notice the end result, the kind of picture that he paints here. It gets to this very famous phrase that you'll also hear used a lot of times outside of the church context. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take that speck out of your eye, when you, do, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? Conclusion, you are a hypocrite. First, you should deal with the log that is in your own eye, and then you will see clearly how to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Simple language. It's easy to understand. Jesus is a very great teacher of his disciples. Don't have a critical spirit. Don't be led by false teachers. If you want to give yourself a litmus test as to how you know if you have a critical spirit, ask yourself this. When you see a sin in your own life and a sin in someone else's life, whose sin are you more critical on? Whose sin do you rush to judgment on first? If you have a sin in your own life that you struggle with, and in this example, a sin that you struggle with more than the other person struggles with, and yet you are quick to call them out of their sin and not very swift to deal with your own sin, be careful because you're a hypocrite. You've taken a standard that even if it's a good standard, you are misusing and you're being generous to yourself and critical to the other person. How do you avoid the hypocrisy? First, deal with the log in your own eye. First, deal with the sin in your own life. Then, you can walk with your brother into holiness. Then you can walk out sanctification with your brother and sister in Christ. But not before you've dealt with your own sin. You must deal with your own sin. Because if you don't deal with your own sin, you have a log in your eye, and you've become a blind teacher. You can't see with a log in your eye. You're a blind person, and you're trying to call them out of their sin, and you yourself are blind. You're going to become the kind of person described in verse 39, a blind person thinking he's qualified to lead other blind people. And what a shame that would be, because they won't even see the coming destruction. They won't even see it. Not only can a blind person not lead a blind person, they can't even see the warning signs on the road ahead of them. Not only can they not map out a successful path, they don't even know when danger is around the corner. They'll both fall to, into a pit, and more than that, they'll both fall into a pit that neither of them saw coming. Blind people can't lead blind people. If you won't deal with your own sin, you can't walk with somebody else into sanctification. You can't disciple someone else into a closer relationship with God if there's sin present in your own life. The reason I think this is so important in the Christian church is because we take other kinds of giftings that people have. Let's say someone is a great preacher or can write really good books. We will permit all manner of other kinds of sin in their life as long as they keep good theology flowing, good illustrations coming, and they give us food to eat. And we need to demand holiness from the kind of people who will lead us. We need to not tolerate anything less than that. 
We don't need to think very long or very hard before we can think of one example of someone who was a sound teacher and who was caught living in sin. While they were teaching all of those sound things. And what a, what a shame that is on the church. What, what blindness that is an example of. We should not tolerate being led by blind people who can't deal with sin. Unholy men are not qualified to lead God's church. God has set his standard out. 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1. Of all of the standards set out in those chapters, one of them has to do with gifting. Every other standard has to do with holy living. One standard, he must be able to teach and exercise authority. Every other standard, he has to live in holiness. He has to be above reproach. He has to be the kind of person who can manage his household. He has to be the kind of person who has good respect among the people he's leading. All of the standards in those, the the overwhelming weight of those standards is on living and life, not on gifting to teach. Gifting to teach is still essential, but it is not able to outweigh somehow any other lack in those other categories. And we should not tolerate that out of our teachers. Because I fear that if we do, if we settle in that kind of way, we won't even see the dangers on the horizon. We won't see it because they won't see it. No one will know what's coming and there will be a looming destruction for the church. So not only should we not be critical, not only should we be careful about who we disciple, not only should we be careful about who we let disciple us, we should also learn from our past, learn from our history. Learn from what happened to faithful Orthodox Judaism by the time Jesus comes on the scene. Because I'll remind you that Judaism in the Old Testament is the religion that God established. He established his law. He established his words, his oracles to his people. And when we get down into the New Testament, it seems that the Pharisees and the Sadducees are the villains of the story. So how did that happen? from the very religion that God established into this now distortion, works-based righteousness kind of religion. How does that happen? It happens in this way. You let one person lead you blindly, and then a few people follow their blind leadership, and a few more, and a few more, and all of a sudden, the leadership has led the people astray, and now the people are blind, so they don't even know how to call out their leadership, and this is just a self-fulfilling cycle. It's a cycle we see in Hosea, where Hosea says to the religious people, I have a bone to pick with you because my people don't even know me anymore. Because you did not teach them. And not only have you not taught them, you've not taught them for so long, they don't even know to ask you to teach them anymore. This is the kind of thing we've even seen in the history of the church, where you'll have whole denominations go astray and the people follow the leaders into blindness, not knowing where they're going. And the leaders teach the people, and then the people institute leaders who look like the ones that they just left. And all of a sudden, you have whole movements of the church completely astray from correct doctrine. How the Jesus warns his people is in Matthew 23. It's one of the last things recorded in Matthew's gospel before he goes to the cross. Turn with me to Matthew 23, and we'll look at verse 13 of this text.
I'll be starting in verse 13. This is what uh, Jesus has to say about the religious people in his day. You're going to get sick of hearing me say this as well, so I'll just warn you on the front end. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel across the sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Do you see what's being said here? So similar to Luke 6. Woe to you blind guides who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone who swears on the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You are blind fools. For which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say that if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing, but if he swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You are blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar, swears by it, and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven, swears by the throne of God, and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and yet you have neglected the weightier matters of the law, which would be justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done, referring to the tithing of the tithe and the mint and the dill. You are blind guides because you are straining out a gnat and you are swallowing a camel. How does the Jewish people get here? It's by generations and generations of people being led by blind guides to the point where the people don't even notice the blindness in their leadership. How could they? They've never been taught otherwise. You'll, if you just want to read all the way to the end of verse 36, you'll just notice how many times that phrase is repeated. Woe to the scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. And you'll just follow the train of thought. It's such a consistent kind of hypocrisy. Putting a burden on the people that they themselves will not bear. And you'll notice how Jesus in Luke 6 is alluding to all of those same truths. That there is a kind of person who you can be led by, who, who can be so blind that you yourself will become blind being led by them. So what are we to do with these truths? If it's so easy to get off track, how can we have any kind of hope or any kind of encouragement, or not be critical of other people. If it's so easy to lose our way, how could we not want to judge other people because what if they lead us astray? How could we exhibit any kind of charity at all if it is possible for leaders to lead us astray? Well, I want to encourage you that I think Scripture gives us both the test by which we can test leaders and tests by which we can test ourselves to make sure we are constantly correcting our way to walk on the narrow path. And I just want to look at one of those series of tests. There's many tests we can look at. Scripture is very good and very consistent to us. But I just want to look at the one located in 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1, and we're just going to look at a couple of verses. This is John, the apostle of love. 
talking about how the church can sift out those who are true converts to the faith and those who are not. And by extension, he encourages them and he, he eventually says, don't, don't worry about the people who left your community because they were false teachers the whole time. And he has this to say about how we would not put a burden on other people. He has this to say about how we ought to examine ourselves. You'll notice this is a kind of internal dialogue that we have. 1 John chapter 1, and I'm just going to begin reading in verse 6. He says, If we say that we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. Notice the first test, right? Walking in the light or walking in the darkness. And you can easily tell in yourself whether you're walking in the light or walking in the darkness. It's an easy kind of self-examination. We shouldn't profess to walk in the light if we walk in the darkness. We are liars. And if we walk in the darkness, we now have an opportunity upon this examination to turn from our darkness and fall onto the way of truth, come back to the faith. Verse 8 has a similar kind of statement. Suppose we say we have no sin. We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. However, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What's the danger in saying we have no sin? Verse 10, suppose we say we have not sinned. We make him, that is God, to be a liar, and his word is evidently not in us. Simple test, right? Just five verses right there. Simple test. And yet, this is a test that we can be wise to constantly come back to and ask ourselves the question, are we still walking in the light? Are we still walking on the narrow path? Or have we strayed and walked into darkness? I think this is a good way to test ourselves because if we're asking these questions about ourselves constantly, there should be no sin that is allowed to get its roots down in our hearts and lead us astray. And so if we test ourselves in this way, we can confidently approach other people and walk with them in sanctification. This kind of regular self-examination, regular self-testing, is the mark of someone who knows how dangerous sin is and who is desperate to shake off its bonds. Not by works, but by Christ's power and his dealing with sin on our behalf. This regular self-test helps us to avoid all that is being warned about, about judging other people hypocritically. Because if we recognize in ourselves how prone we are to slip into sin, and we see that consistently over the course of our lives, we will be so much slower to judgment. We will be so much more charitable with how we even correct people who are in sin. We will be the kind of people who can both uphold a holy standard that God requires, and do so in a way that does not heap burdens upon other people that they could not possibly bear. Because we would never be asking something of someone else that we have not ourselves been disciplined in first. We could lead people to God's grace continually, which is the only source of not actually receiving their just condemnation. And we could only lead them there if we know consistently where to go to get it. You can't lead anyone to God's grace if you yourself have not been there. And if you don't regularly visit, you might get lost on the way. 
So you need to regularly sit at the feet of the cross, repenting of your own sin, checking your own heart, dealing with your own sin nature that you must wrestle with. And in doing so, you prepare yourself well to disciple other people in the same. The truth is, you can know all the right standards of the law and be like the Pharisees who don't know what it is to taste the grace of God. And so you don't know to lead other people in that same grace. Why would you? You've never had it yourself. But you do know how to discipline yourself more. You do know how to tithe more carefully. You do know how to obey the Sabbath and memorize all its particulars. So you'll do that. And when other people are caught in sin, you'll just tell them to do the same thing. Because that's what you learned how to do. As Christians, we have a far better solution for dealing with the sin problem than any other religious system has. Because the truth is, the secret is, we're actually not dealing with the sin problem. God is. We don't deal with our own sin by our own strength, by our own power. If that were possible, the Pharisees would have gotten to it before we did. But they don't. And so you can be assured that no amount of human labor, human effort, human self-righteousness could ever attain this kind of salvation. But Jesus did attain this kind of salvation. He actually did fully complete the law in a way the Pharisees never could and never did. And then rather than staying there and telling the rest of us to go and do likewise, he actually forgives us of our sins, and then he lets us stand where he stood, and he dies in our place. And then he resurrects from the grave and says, I have given you mercy, go and do likewise. He doesn't say go and do likewise in terms of obedience, although obedience is a natural response to loving God. But he does say go and do likewise in terms of proclaiming this good news of salvation that I have now given you. You notice he doesn't commission them out into all the world to proclaim the Jewish law. He commissions them out into all the world to make disciples of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, who have dealt with their sin. And it frees them to be able to lead other people into dealing with their sin. There is no amount of religious works, no amount of law memorization, no amount of good things that we could do that could ever get rid of the sin burden. And if we approach sin in that way, verse 37 is what we're at risk of. We are at risk of judging other people and heaping that same standard we hold ourselves to onto them. And yet we are not called to do that. We are called to talk about the holiness of God and follow that right up with the mercy and the grace of God. We are told to not lower the standard by which God requires people to attain salvation, but never convince people that they actually can reach that standard. The law is the standard that all people must meet, and yet no one can meet it. But it doesn't stop there because the hope is in Christ who does meet the law, who does what none of us could ever do, and then gives us what he has earned. And you'll notice there's no judgment there. Not because God is unable to judge. He has plenty of reasons to judge. There's no judgment there because the judgment has already been dealt. Christ Jesus has already been judged. Christ Jesus already bore the wrath of God. It happened 2,000 years ago. It happened, as Luke records it, under the hands of Pontius Pilate. 
It happened not as some mythical imagination of the apostles, but as history that you can count on. And it's something we can point to and we can remind ourselves of. And not only was that condemnation there on the cross, but also we have very good testimony that Christ Jesus got up three days later and started walking around and proclaiming that he is now victorious over death as well. And so not only do we have the assurance that Jesus did die in the place of sin, we also have assurance that all who trust in his name and follow after him and bear his cross will also be resurrected to a new life in the same way that he was. Not because we have earned it, not because we are smarter than anybody else, but because Jesus did something that blows human imagination, which is that he displayed the mercy of God onto creation. Remember, verse 36 is so important in this text. Be merciful even as your father is merciful. How is God the father merciful? By not giving us justice, but rather giving us his son and showing us mercy in the process. And all who know Christ, who have tasted of his salvation, know what that mercy is like. And we ought to be very quick to show that same mercy to as many other people as we can. And if you don't know what that mercy is like, you need to know what that mercy is like. This is not optional. These are not things that are nice to do and you're better off as a person if you do them and you're worse off if you don't do them. These are realities rooted in what God has done for people. And God does not have a bad case against us. Every single one of us can just reflect on the last week of sin that we've committed and testify to the fact that God has a very good case. And yet he is not quick to judge us, but rather he is slow, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to a knowledge of salvation. And so if you are caught in your sin and you know the weight of your sin and you're trying to escape that weight, just know that it's already been done. Throw yourself before the mercy of God because he is a merciful judge. He's perfectly righteous. He dealt with it with Jesus, but he is a merciful judge who is quick to forgive. As soon as we confess our sins, he forgives us. As soon as we confess them, he is not slow to forgive. We are slow to confess. And when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of those sins that we've confessed and actually cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is the assurance that we have in the mercy of God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, would your name be lifted up and magnified here in this place, Lord? Lord, you are a God who gives us gifts that we couldn't possibly begin to thank you enough for. That we should never move past and never grow tired of hearing about. Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you for the mercy that you show us. And thank you that you have not only extended that mercy to us, but you've given us the commission of extending that mercy to as many as would receive it. Lord, I pray that we would be your faithful witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. We ask these things in your precious name. Amen.